35 years is just a little bit over half my life. It is half of John and Noreen's life that they have been looking for their son. Gosh, family friend Ron Sampson woke up today feeling sad. He'll never forget that morning 35 years ago in West Des Moines when 12-year-old Johnny Gosh vanished from this street corner near Valley High School. The rubber bands from the Des Moines Sunday Register and the wagon he carried the newspapers in, the only evidence he was here. It's something that's embedded in our generation's minds and hopefully we'll pass it on to the kids that are now raising their kids. Samson wrote about the Gosh case for the West Des Moines Express newspaper back in the 80s. He became friends with Johnny's parents, John and Noreen. I think that our son was taken off the corner of 42nd and Marcourt. I don't believe for one minute that he ran away or walked voluntarily with anyone. He just wouldn't do that. Day after day, police and volunteers searched for Johnny, but the days turned into weeks, months, and years. Theories of kidnapping and sex rings have come and gone. The case even inspired the first missing pictures on milk cartons, thanks to Anderson Erickson Dairy. That's the incredible thing. After 35 years, there is not clue one. Still a very much active case. West Des Moines Police Spokesman Sergeant Mike Impolo says the department still receives tips in the case, but nothing yet to solve the crime. We still follow the leads on this case just like we do every other, even like we did back in 1982. John and Noreen Gosh have long been divorced, but still hope for an end to their son's disappearance. And they aren't the only ones. For John and Noreen's sake, I hope that there's a resolution. For all of our sakes, I hope there's a resolution. That's a news clip from KCCI Des Moines, published on September 5th, 2017. 35 years to the day that Johnny Gosh went missing. I think we can all agree with that last sentence from the Gosh's family friend, Ron Sampson. We all want there to be a resolution to Johnny's case. I think that's why you're joining me now. In the past two weeks, since I recorded my last episode, I am so pleasantly surprised at the huge boom I've seen in episode downloads and likes on our Facebook page. I want to officially say welcome to all of you who have jumped on board during the past two weeks and everyone who's gotten in touch. I encourage you to keep doing that. Share your ideas with me based on the information I've talked about so far. So that being said, this first segment seems to me to be a good point not only to rehash some of the functions of the organizations I've spoken about so far, such as the Missing Persons Support Center and the Doe Network, but also to start taking that next step up in determining what happened next to Johnny. We've seen and heard evidence to indicate that Johnny Gosh was abducted on the morning of September 5th, 1982, and sold into a pedophile ring that stretched across multiple states, which has led to his own mother Noreen's account that he lived at least well into his 20s after having escaped from this ring and then coming to her front door in the middle of the night in March of 1997. But we also have conflicting opinions. There is evidence but none of this evidence translates into proof. Albeit all the signs pointing to the contrary, there still exists the possibility that Johnny did not even live 24 hours after his abduction. Meaning maybe there was no pedophile ring at all, just one or two criminals acting alone. Or maybe there was indeed a pedophile ring, but Johnny was one of the many children who ended up being killed at the hands of his abusers. Meaning he couldn't have shown up at his mother's apartment in 1997. So it's time to begin to go beyond the information Information readily available through old news clips and internet searches. Separate each credible theory and see where each timeline leads to. Some may lead to either a dead end or it might become evident that a theory is simply not realistic. That's why we'll go through each theory, step by step, 
This is episode eight of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. first segment today to be a call to action of sorts. Now that I've started to give you the history of the Johnny Gosh case, and I'm seeing such an uptick in downloads and people reaching out to me, I don't want it to end there until some other documentary or podcast decides to retell this story. I'd like to see this translate into something. So I'm going to start with a brief lesson in how to submit a potential match between a missing person and an unidentified person to the Doe Network. Regardless of any outcome, to the Johnny Gosh case. This will probably end up being the most important tool that we have. Even if you are convinced that an adult Johnny visited his mother Noreen in March of 1997, that's still 21 years ago right there that he was last seen. So even if we were to accept that encounter as fact, there's still no evidence of Johnny's whereabouts or if he was even alive beyond that night. And if he is deceased by now, and bear in mind, this is apropos of whether he died as a child or as an adult. He had to have either been using an assumed name or his name was simply unknown at the time of his death. So, the Doe Network. First, go to their website, doenetwork.org. Once you get there, you'll see the tabs across the top of the page. First, hover over the one that says Case Files. Click on Our Numbering System to see exactly how each ID number is determined. Now, this page lays it out pretty plain and simple. The actual numeric symbols at the beginning of each case number represents the number of cases profiled for that category, which is based on gender. The next two digits are either UF, UM, DF, or DM, meaning either unidentified female, unidentified male, disappeared female, or disappeared male. The last two digits are two letters representing in which state the unidentified person was found or where the disappeared person was last seen. So the example they give is 255UFFL. So that means that this is the 255th unidentified female on their website. The FL means that she was discovered in the state of Florida. Another example, 2242DMWV. The 2,242nd disappeared male on the Doe website, last seen in the state of West Virginia. Johnny Gosh's ID number on the Doe network is 160DMIA. I'd like to also give you Eugene Martin's and Mark Allen's ID numbers. Eugene's is 8DMIA and Mark's is 34DMIA. So... Now that you get the numbering system, to submit a potential match, you just go to the tabs at the top, hover over where it says potential matches, and click on submit a match. And that will take you to a form. Easy peasy from there. You just type in the missing person's DOE ID number and the unidentified person's ID number, fill out the rest of the questions, which are very straightforward, such as do the genders match? Does the race match? Missing person place of disappearance? Unidentified person place of recovery? And so forth. And that's how easy it is. 
From there, it goes on to Mary Bell and the rest of her potential match panel. And regarding Johnny Gosh, please remember to rule out the unidentified person that I already submitted, which I've spoken about before. And that is 174UMCO. 174UMCO is not a match for Johnny Gosh. And it's very easy to search through these listings too. You just hover over the case files, hover over unidentified or missing, and then click on either geographical or chronological. And for missing, there's also alphabetical. And you can look at the full lists. So speaking of Mary Bell and the Doe Network, you remember back in episode two when I first spoke to Mary and she spoke to me a little bit on the match panel and what they look for in finding a potential match. I want to assure you that credible cases are followed up on. I asked Mary, what would have to happen for a cold case to be reinvestigated? Most large city police departments have a cold case unit. So we would direct it to that, direct our potential match to the cold case unit. If they didn't have a detective uh, entered into NamUs as being in charge of it, but the unidentified body is always going to have a medical examiner in charge of that person. So they they never have cold cases. The uh, medical examiner always wants to look at uh, potentials. So now that you know where to go and how to submit a potential match to the Doe Network, I want you to always have that ready in the back of your mind as we investigate Johnny's case further. So as I said, we're going to go through each theory of what happened to Johnny and follow where each timeline takes us. The theory that I want to start with is that Johnny did escape from the pedophile ring as a young adult, he did hide out on Indian reservations, and he did visit Noreen in March of 1997. I'm starting there because that's Johnny's own mother's account of what happened, and she is the one who allegedly saw him in the flesh that night 21 years ago. So let's start with a quick reminder of what Noreen told FBI special agent turned private investigator Ted Gunderson regarding that night. And I said, you're going to have to have a safe place to stay. I said, let me call somebody that can come here tonight and give us some legal advice and some help. And he said to me, I can't stay. You don't understand. It's not safe. And I said, you wouldn't be safe if I stayed. They'll kill me. And then my son went on to to talk about the high-level pornography and prostitution drug-running group that he had been taken into, and he talked about Colonel Michael Aquino. He talked about some of the local people in Des Moines, Iowa, that he knew were involved. People across the country that were in high places politically, he mentioned. Some senators all the way to the White House. I sat there and I was shocked because I had not heard any of this. And he told me that he wanted me to get his story out. He wanted me to do something that would start to make some arrests happen so that he and the other kids that were involved could someday be free, maybe to go reunite with their families. But at this point, they had no choice but to hide out. He also explained to me that he and a couple of the other boys had stolen a car earlier, several years earlier, and that's how they got away from the actual kidnappers, the ones that actually controlled their movements on a daily basis, keeping them in safe houses across the country. And that when they stole this car, they went to one of the boys' homes, and his father was a CPA, 
in another city, a very well-respected man. They stayed there several days. And from that house, Johnny and one of the other young boys went to an Indian reservation to live. And Johnny ended up living on many Indian reservations in seclusion, disguising himself, making himself look like a Native American during that period of his life. And he did that to avoid being found. He went to an Indian reservation to avoid being apprehended, if you will, by authorities because it's a sovereign state. They knew they'd be safe on an Indian reservation. I mentioned in my last episode that if Johnny and this other young man had been hiding out on Indian reservations, it would make sense that that's also where they went after they disappeared again that night. Well, I am not familiar with the geography of any reservations, so I took some time to look up some maps that would lay out reservations in this general area near West Des Moines, Iowa, as well as Nebraska and Colorado. As I did a search for reservations in Iowa, I found a website for the Meskwaki Nation at meskwaki.org. It's for the Sac and Fox tribe of the Mississippi in Iowa. Interestingly, it says on their homepage that the Sac and Fox tribe of the Mississippi in Iowa is the only federally recognized Indian tribe in Iowa. Their tribal name is Meskwaki, which means Red Earth People. I first found this website a long time ago, sometime last year when I first began to really get into Johnny's case. But a few days ago, out of curiosity, I looked up the street address for the tribal center, and then I did a Google map directions from that address to West Des Moines, Iowa. The shortest distance between those two locations by car was one hour and 12 minutes. Now this may not mean anything, but you could hypothesize that if Johnny and this other man and these other victims who escaped had access to a car, whether they stole one as indicated in the clip of Noreen in episode seven, whether they hitchhiked or they just knew someone who had a car, that this general area among the Sac and Fox tribe of the Mississippi was where Johnny had been living at the time. Now, I usually save this part for the end of each episode, but I want to take a moment to direct you to the Faded Out Facebook page. The reason is because I'm going to be putting these links on Facebook, as well as the maps of the reservations. I will also try to upload them as extra material if you download this podcast directly from fadedout.libsyn.com. I'm sure there are listeners out there who would know how to look into these possibilities better than I would know how. That's the question I'm posing to you. Is there a way to find out if someone looking to keep a low profile could just show up on one of these reservations and just blend in with everyone else? And what about some of these other tribes that stretch across Nebraska and the ones in Colorado? And as I said, I do not claim any of this to be fact. It's simply a hypothesis based on that clip of Noreen's interview with Ted Gunderson. But see, there's a few roadblocks there too. This FBI special agent in charge turned private investigator Ted Gunderson is not without his own controversy, to say the least. So in my next segment, I'm going to talk about some of the problems with Gunderson. It's one of the conflicts that I have with this part of the story. Can we trust anything that Ted Gunderson has had a hand in? That's up next.
you a recap of Ted Gunderson. He graduated from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln in 1950, and he joined the FBI in 1951 under J. Edgar Hoover. Over the years, he rose the ranks in the FBI, and he became a special agent in charge. He was appointed the head of the Los Angeles FBI in 1977, and he almost became FBI director in 1979, though that job would ultimately go to William H. Webster. So that same year, Gunderson retired from the FBI, and he became a private investigator. And this is where things start to get weird. And it began with a case that he took on in 1980. Gunderson was hired as a defense investigator for Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, who had been battling a conviction from 1970 stating that he had murdered his wife Colette and their two daughters, Kimberly and Kristen, by beating them and stabbing them to death. McDonald suffered a few injuries in that attack, and his story was that a gang of hippies, high on acid, forced their way into the family's house, chanting something along the lines of, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, and then they killed his family. Well, as you might imagine, with no evidence, this story didn't fly with police investigators, and McDonald became the prime suspect. So, with Ted Gunderson hired to clear McDonald, Gunderson tracked down a discarded suspect named Helena Stokely, and she was a heavy drug user. And so according to a website called omgfacts.com, Gunderson offered her immunity, relocation to California, and a part in a movie in exchange for a full confession. The confession, if you want to call it one, was all over the place and it was totally inadmissible in court. She claimed to be part of a satanic cult that killed the McDonald family as a ritual. And there was nothing of any kind of substance that could be used in McDonald's favor. So ultimately he got three consecutive life sentences for the murders. Ted Gunderson moved on to other things after that, but the story from Helena Stokely clearly got to him because from that moment on, he made it his mission to expose these satanic cults and ritual killings. And unfortunately, this is where anything with Ted Gunderson's involvement begins to gradually lose credibility. Ted Gunderson was, for all intents and purposes, one of the first conspiracy theorists. I want to play you a clip right now of Gunderson himself talking about this particular case and his questioning of Helena Stokely. And on October 25, 1980, I obtained a signed confession from Helena Stokely, the girl in the floppy hat, if you know the case. By the way, uh, there was a best-selling book, Fatal Vision, and a movie out on this. And the girl in the floppy hat said that Dr. McDonald did not commit those crimes. They were committed by my satanic cult group. And it was my initiation into the cult that night. And she gave me detailed information about the movement within the house that night, who did what. And I said to her, Helena, uh, how do I know you're telling me the truth? And so one of the questions I asked her, the whole series of questions I asked her, and this is on audio video in some instances the video, but always on audio. She said, uh, I said, Lena, tell me about the, describe the uh, jewelry box on the dresser in the master bedroom. And she described it right to a T. And just to make sure, I went down to Sears Roebuck and got a catalog and brought it back. And I said, Lena, pick out the jewelry box in this catalog that was on the dresser. She picked out the jewelry box. It matched. Also, she told me that she attempted to ride a rocking horse in the child's bedroom that night. But she couldn't ride it because the spring was broken. 
The only way she could have known that spring was broken was to have been there the night of the murders, February 17, 1970. Now, he talks a lot about how she was able to describe certain things within the house. A rocking horse in the girl's bedroom. A jewelry box in the master bedroom. Well, the thing is, all that actually tells me is that he was guiding her answers the entire time. Don't forget, this is a former FBI special agent in charge. It's not an unusual practice for law enforcement to create their own narrative and guide a suspect's answers to fit that narrative. One great example is a podcast you may have heard of called Undisclosed. And the first season of Undisclosed follows a case that's been getting a lot of media attention as of late. It's the murder of Heyman Lee. And there's a suspect in that case named Jay. At the time cops are questioning Jay, they've already decided they have enough to arrest Adnan Syed, Hay's ex-boyfriend. I can't remember which episode of Undisclosed it is, but they play a recording of the cops questioning Jay. You can hear how they guide his answers. Jay's answers are very choppy. He talks as if he's reading, like there's papers right in front of him. And one thing that really stands out is whenever Jay seems to be lost searching for an answer, you can hear three distinct taps on the table, like this. And then Jay would get back on track with his answer. Sort of like the cops were indicating something to him, but did not want to say it out loud because anything they would say would end up in the transcript. The transcript just gives Jay's responses to their questions without tone or inflection. And certainly a periodic three taps on the table would not show up in the transcript. So getting back to Ted Gunderson, in this speech that he's giving, He's leaving out the fact that Helena Stokely was a heavy drug user, and that's the exact reason her explanation couldn't be used in court. It was bizarre, and it made no sense. He's also conveniently leaving out that he told her that in exchange for this confession, he would get her a relocation to California and a part in a movie. But clearly, when she started talking about satanic cults and ritual killings, it struck an obvious nerve with Gunderson. He became a big believer in the Illuminati. And let me be clear, I've stated on this podcast before that I will try my best to not lean towards any bias as we follow the Johnny Gosh case. And I take my statement very seriously, and I will continue to be as unbiased as I can. But generally speaking, anytime I hear someone use the word Illuminati and they're genuinely thinking that it's a real thing and that there's a new world order and so forth, that is the moment when people lose their credibility with me. At the risk of offending anyone who is listening to this episode, I want to say on record that if you perpetuate this talk about secret societies, all the symbols, you sound foolish. And it's typically a theory I found in my own experience that is believed by people who don't really have a full understanding of how government works and they think that they know more than they actually do. So my point is, that is not a route that we will be taking in this podcast. So Ted Gunderson makes a few appearances in that video that I played you some clips from, America's MIA Children. Here are some clips from him in that video. So definitely in my opinion, a conspiracy here. I, right. I, have say, I have to say there's a conspiracy. Um, if not a direct conspiracy, certainly a, a loose-knit conspiracy um, by the mere fact that these uh, kids, uh, if it's true, and I, I have a tendency to believe it is true, these kids were transported to Los Angeles where they obtained drugs, where they were involved in ritual ceremonies. They were transported to Washington, D.C., where they were they claimed they were molested. And, uh, and there's some, obviously some top political figures involved in this sort of thing. 
there are internment camps around the country where they keep these people after they kidnap them. And I've heard of one in Des Moines, Iowa, as a matter of fact. Um, I, know, I know of one in West Virginia. I know of one in uh, Nevada, near the Arizona border. I know of some in California and also in the state of Washington. And uh, these are well organized. They're, uh, they're camps where they keep the people behind cages. And um, I've been told that they're involved in brainwashing in these particular camps. And many of the victims that are kidnapped end up in these camps. So you see how I feel conflicted again. Does Ted Gunderson's history as a conspiracy theorist mean that we shouldn't trust his insight into these alleged pedophilia rings? But if we did that, then wouldn't that mean that we have to discard Dr. Judy Ann Denson-Gerber, who specifically treated patients claiming to have been victims of cult abuse? Here's a quick reminder of her accounts. Uh, I'm Judy Ann Denson-Gerber. I am a psychiatrist and a lawyer and have been practicing since 1967. At that time, my major interest was in drug abuse, and I founded the Odyssey House programs across the United States, in Australia, New Zealand, and in Hong Kong. By 1985, however, I began to see a new phenomenon, and that phenomenon was that the patients that I was seeing many of whom had disassociative disorders, post-traumatic stress, which I've talked about, but also multiple personality, uh, and therefore could only remember fragments of what had happened to them, but these fragments were coming out in their 30s, began to remember ritualistic cult abuse. And to my uh, sadness, having been a religious major in college, I realized that there were many people who used their children in uh, the worship of the Prince of Darkness, Satan, Lucifer, uh, Isis, which is an Egyptian prince of the, uh, princess of darkness, actually, married to the king of the underworld, and that we had many, many victims of this type of activity. Uh, someone who had uh, knew that this was my field and knew that there were implications of ritual and uh, satanic cult abuse in the Nebraska Franklin Credit Union uh, scandal and uh, embezzlement of funds, uh, and that the major witness uh, in that, Paul Benassi, uh, happened to be a victim himself at a very early age of child molestation, uh, had been a boy prostitute, uh, had been in porn uh, pictures, had also, uh, according to his, his statements, uh, participated in five cult murders, uh, and was a multiple personality, uh, very much like Sybil is the one that I'm sure most people will know, we Faces of Eve, that because he was a multiple personality and since I was an expert in disassociation and multiplicity, would I see him for the purposes of whether or not uh, he was credible. Uh, when interviewing Paul Benassi, he definitely said that he had seen uh, Gosh, and he had seen Gosh on two separate occasions uh, in a child white slave house. Uh, he also described that Gosh had an unusual birthmark. This birthmark w was not part of the general information. And when he shared that with Mr. Gosh and then eventually with Mrs. Gosh, they said that it had to be their son. Now, for, uh, this would have been about um, at least four years after the initial kidnapping occurred. 
to me, the fact that he had seen uh, this young man alive in a child white slave house could describe a physical uh, aspect that was not uh, a usual one, that the parents themselves uh, said that they believed that he had seen their son definitely deserved to be looked into. I mean, that isn't something you can just uh, turn aside. Wouldn't we then also have to discard Paul Benassi? To me, that would be absurd. Paul Benassi has shown himself to be nothing but credible as far as the Johnny Gosh case is concerned. He knew details about the morning of the kidnapping that no one else would have known. He brought America's Most Wanted to the abandoned house in Colorado where the boys were kept. So where do we make that separation? You have a very real thing that happened. There was a 12-year-old boy named Johnny Gosh. He was abducted off the street at 42nd and Marcor in West Des Moines, Iowa on September 5th, 1982. There is a man named Paul Benassi. He did show America's Most Wanted, that house in Colorado. None of that is theory. That's all fact. The story becomes convoluted when the unfounded theories become intertwined with the facts and as a result, poison the facts. So this two-hour-long taped interview that Noreen Gosh did for Ted Gunderson, do we trust it? Or did Ted Gunderson already have a narrative in mind which made him able to guide Noreen's answers? You can see in the video that they were prepared answers. Noreen is reading from cards, which she appears to have written herself. My question is, did Gunderson urge her to include certain details in each of her answers? Details that would fit his narrative. But like I've always said too, Noreen is not one easily duped. She's been through it all, and she knows when someone is full of BS, quite frankly. I wish I could talk to Noreen, and I wish I could ask her about all of this. And I do want you all to know that I did reach out to her. She has not gotten back to me. I really hope she does, though, but... If she chooses not to, then I will have to accept that. So regardless of what any of us may think of Ted Gunderson, we're going to continue, for now, to follow the route that Johnny had escaped and had hidden out on Indian reservations. Please look at the links and the map that I will provide on our Faded Out Facebook page. In my next episode, we're going to take another look at Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino and look into what his involvement was, if any at all. We'll also talk a bit more about how credible theories can suddenly take a wrong turn. So please feel free to get in touch with me. You can email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. Like I said, we are on Facebook. The URL for that is facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. You can also request to join our closed group, Followers of Faded Out, if you'd like to talk details of the Johnny Gosh case. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting and Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode eight. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.